0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, Institutional Portfolio Manager Elon Colette walks us through the inflation story, the resiliency of the market, and how the Canadian consumer is faring in this current market environment. Elan is part of Fidelity's Global Asset Allocation Team. He says the team expected to see stress in the Canadian economy But that doesn't seem to be the case. The Canadian household has also been more resilient than the team would have expected. He says two major things have contributed to the sustainability of the Canadian consumer. Excess savings built up during the pandemic and generational transfer of wealth. But the question remains, when will this cushion of savings run out? The GAA team predicts the middle of 2024. However, Canadians are feeling the pinch of rising interest rates as many are experiencing a high jump in their mortgage payments, which have forced them to pull back on discretionary spending. Plus, there is a lack of affordable supply of homes in Canada, which is affecting the overall housing market. Elon looks ahead to the Bank of Canada's upcoming rate announcement and believes until the BOC sees cooled housing, spending and employment, we can expect further rate hikes. He also gives an overview of the team's asset allocation, adding that they continue to be underweight Canadian and U.S. equities and overweight international and emerging markets. On the bond side, they are underweight investment grade, overweight credit and spread factors, and of course, inflation-protected bonds. This podcast was recorded on September 5, 2023. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: How are you?
2: I'm, I'm well, thanks. Very nice to see you cool. as well. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, delight to have you here. So let's begin with the question that, that you've tackled recently in, in various writings. The resilience of the economy, these are sort of some Western economies will zero in on Canada, but. What's the deal? We've got crazy high interest rates and we seem to be okay.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is something to be quite frank, came as a surprise to us, right? And it's the reason why we wanted to do a deep dive and investigate it. how after 475 basis points of tightening in Canada and over 500 basis points of tightening in the US, are markets and households so resilient? And what we did is we specifically dove into the case for Canada. Yeah, um, and in in terms of Canada, I mean Canada, we really expected to see in the first half of this year some stress appear. Right? If you had asked me a year ago, the highest inflation in forty years, meeting the a really significant monetary policy response,
1: like at a pace uh, that at, is at a
2: pace that was really unprecedented, uh, I would have I would have told you by the middle of this year we are sitting in a recession in Canada, and and the household, the Canadian household specifically. Has been more resilient than we would have expected, and and this most recent paper that we published uh, a little while ago dives into the reasons for that resilience. Which, really, I think, you know, not to give away the punchline, is a kicking of the can, right? So it's oh, not really resilience; it's more sustainability that's being confused for resilience.
1: So you break it out into different pieces. One of which is is the savings that Canadians have have been able to enjoy. There's been a cushion effect there, and it's and it's still there.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So we really highlight two specific uh, points that have contributed to the sustainability of of the extremely elevated debt loads that most Canadians have. Right, Again, highest in the G7, exceptionally high debt loads, intersecting rates that are much higher. Um, So Canada is just a much more interest rate sensitive economy than the US. And so how has this not sort of broken the back of the Canadian household? The first reason is that excess savings, right? And that comes from a few different places. Um, The first is there was a significant cushion of excess savings built up during the pandemic when services were closed and you could only buy goods and there was a lot of income support, right? Which is the right, probably the right approach for this type of shock we had, but it resulted in a really significant cushion of excess savings. Um, And we worked very closely with our asset allocation research uh, team colleagues down in the US, um, a great team that, that we have access to that we work with closely, to estimate, well, to answer the question, how big is this cushion of excess savings and mm-hmm. when will it run out? And the answer based on a few different assumptions for how quickly you, you spend it or how you measure that, that cushion of savings is by the middle of next year,
1: okay. regardless
2: of how you measure it, this cushion of excess savings for the average Canadian household has been has has been run out has been expanded
1: is it going faster now
2: so it's still continuing at, at at a fairly um sort of significant or steady pace what could advance it to before the middle of next year mm-hmm. would be an employment shock right would be any sort of external shock would pull that in closer um, or any further tightening from from monetary policy authorities. Um,
1: so, so we'll dig further into the savings cushion and and what it is made up of as well. The other main point that you look at, and you know, this this is kind of what everyone's worried about, or, or is is the mortgage situation in this country, right? I mean, how do those that have mortgages for, in many cases, houses that are that are maybe beyond their reach um, handle this kind of rate rise situation?
2: Yeah. I, again, this is. This is absolutely critical for us to understand, right? So if we rewind, like, how did we get here, really, is the first yeah, question. okay. So if you rewind to 2008, we had a global financial crisis. Canada comes through that financial crisis, probably the best in the G7, maybe tied with Germany. We don't really have, um, you know, the systemic problems that, that the U.S. had, but rates move much lower. And then Canadians do what low rates incentivize you to do, right? They buy lots of durables Stuff. that you can Finance at a long period over a long period of time, um, and this is exactly what Canadians did. They bought houses, cottages, condos, CDs, skidoo's, quads, which is a, a word I didn't know what it meant. What are qu- it, oh like, like four the four wheeler wheelers? Things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, anyway, you buy these things that you can finance at a low rate for a long time, and that's not a problem unless you get an inflation. The largest inflation shock in forty years, resulting in a
1: pandemic. very, very
2: exactly very, very quick uh, monetary policy tightening and normalization. And that's the situation we're in right now. And so uh, what we what we did in the paper is we looked at the debt service ratio for, for Canadians, okay. and we examined the path of that. And what's interesting is the path of that debt service ratio sort of understates the true impact that the tightening has had on Canadian mortgages. Because what has happened is, if your mortgage payment is $2,000 and has now gone to $3,500, uh, most people cannot afford that enormous jump. And what's happened is the entire 2,000 is heading to an interest payment, and the excess is sort of being tacked on to the end of the loan. Um, oh. And so oh, most households are not feeling the true impact of the increase in
1: rates. And this is forbearance, essentially, or this it's, it's is kind it's kind of, type effective, of... Effective forbearance is mm-hmm. what we
2: turned term, it in the paper. We also did a simulation saying, had the debt service ratio risen as we would have expected, and it would have risen to the highest number in 32 years. right? So it would have been a straight line up and would have indicated a significant amount of stress. So there is some, it's not a very scientific word, but there's some squishy stuff happening in terms of, um, you know, minimizing the effect of the monetary policy rate increases, um, which in the eyes of the Bank of Canada, you know, means they may have to do more.
1: And what are we looking at in terms of mortgages, well, becoming longer, essentially? I mean, it, you're, you're at a situation where if you're not really eating away at the principal in the way that the entire mortgage, again, was originated to do, how much longer are the terms looking or potentially?
2: Yeah. So anecdotally, I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've had conversations with people who have talked about some of, you know, anecdotally conversations with some advisors who have talked about some of their clients having mortgages that are amortizing or, or paid off in the 70, 80, 90 year horizon.
1: Right, that's long. Uh,
2: that's quite long. Um, but again, what we what we sort of put forth in this paper is that this is not a permanent solution. This is a kicking of the can. Okay. And eventually, uh, you know, eventually this becomes a sort of a problem that you have to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it should result in what we expect will happen, which is a pullback in con- discretionary consumer spending. Consumer spending is two thirds of Canadian GDP. In order to make those principal homeowner payments, uh, and probably some properties coming to market, right? So some of the speculative activity coming out of the market. That is something that we would have thought would have
1: happened by now. By now,
2: right? But but it hasn't. But it doesn't mean it won't.
1: And does that alleviate? I mean, we're going to talk about the housing situation because it it is obviously coming to a fore. it seems, this fall as well um, in this country in in terms of a lack of housing. Um, Does that help?
2: Well, so the housing housing issue is a complicated one. It is. I think, you know, rates pushing much lower incentivized demand. Um, There is, you know, the, the supply issue is there are many different views on it. I think there is... Not just a lack of supply. I think there's a lack of affordable entry-level For supply, sure. um, and you know immigration plays into this as well, right? So it's a yeah. it's a
1: it's a multi-pronged issue. it's a
2: multi-pronged topic, um, and and it's something that can be pretty controversial. But you know Canada's immigration group by a million people last year, five hundred thousand of that growth of that growth by a million is immigration, and. While uh, the immigration story is undoubtedly an upward arrow or a boost to the potential growth rate of the Canadian economy in the long run, it takes time for the skills to sort of be absorbed by the economy. But the 500,000 people that move here require housing services okay. immediately on day one. right? So there's a bit of a mismatch, a timing mismatch there. Um, I mean, it's, there's no doubt, I think, that more people competing over fewer houses or the same stock of houses. Would drive the prices. Would drive the prices up.
1: Will some of the people who own houses currently have to put them on the market, therefore freeing up some supply? Again, this is not the building story. This is just um, the turnover, really.
2: Yeah. So we have seen. I mean, it's still, it's still not really bearing out in the data. No. I mean, a okay. lot of people are just kind of holding their homes for sale. We have seen a really steep decline in new shovels in the ground in terms of new right. building because that is. Historically, that's the most sensitive part, interest rate sensitive part of an economy is housing, right? So is the, there is this 2007 paper that we've talked about in the past, housing is the business cycle. Hmm. Uh, that that really puts forth the idea that, you know, because housing is so interest rate sensitive, both when rates are being cut and being raised, that it tells you more about the business cycle than really anything else. Hmm.
1: What can you tell us about the economy right now, or the, the cycle that we're in? I mean, let's put that together for a second. What, where are we with the housing cycle and therefore where are we in the business cycle
2: right so I mean we use so there's two ways to answer that question first on housing uh, you know new residential investment as measured by the GDP accounts that only measures new shovels in the ground right um, okay. And it also captures uh, commissions from real estate um, and and um, renovations and improvements but the bulk of it is new shovels in the ground for new buildings that has fallen by more than twenty percent since its peak. Um, it really exploded um, post-pandemic, or but it's fallen by twenty percent to uh, roughly pre-pre COVID levels. Um, so that that has been an outright drag on growth. Um, but it's interesting. The resale market um, it really came under pressure when rates were moving up a lot last year, uh, and now there are signs of life. Right. So it's sort of coming back to life. This is the case in, in Canada and the U.S. Um, and the way I think about that, and the way we think about that on the team is that's not the signal the Bank of Canada or the Fed wants to see, hmm. right? So again, taking this back to what does it mean for monetary policy and positioning, yeah. uh, what the Bank of Canada, let's let's stay with Canada, what the Bank of Canada wants to see is a cooling in demand, right? So that's right. not just housing, that's also consumer spending, um, and that's the consumer spending, even related to when you might purchase a house. What what they're hoping for is 475 basis points of tightening would have cooled housing and would have cooled discretionary consumer spending, and taken some of the um, some of the heat off the labor market. Yeah. Right. So there's been a slight drift higher in Canada in the unemployment rate, but very very slightly. It's still exceptionally an exceptionally tight labor market. And very, very tight in the U.S. as well.
1: Yeah, and so those numbers that we saw um, that we were indicating in the intro. Uh, just a quick note, we also indicated in the, the intro to to flesh out the Canadian economy. Oil price is going higher for entirely foreign reasons. Uh, it's a global market. Good for Canada? Uh,
2: another complex, uh, a complex one to unpack. So there's a few ways to think about the oil price.
1: Because it used to just be
2: good. It used to be oil prices higher, all the boats in Canada are lifted. Right, um, And it's a little bit more complicated now. So the first way to think about, the first way I think about the oil price is with respect to the Canadian dollar, right? So I always think of the Canadian dollar as being a function of, of three factors. One, commodity prices or oil prices. Mm-hmm. Oil prices, commodity prices up, Canadian dollar up. Mm-hmm. That's a slight oversimplification. Uh, the second point is an interest rate differential. Meaning think about where the Fed and the BOC where their terminal point will be. If the Fed's terminal point is gonna be higher than the BOC, uh, that means a depreciation of the Canadian dollar. And the third one is sentiment, right? And this is something we saw in the back half of last year. right? When sentiment is exceptionally negative, when equity and credit markets sell off, Canadian dollar comes under pressure. It's a cyclical currency. Um, right now, I think the most interesting part of that, that answer is, the dividend or the tailwind that Canada gets from commodity prices or oil prices moving higher. It used to be quite strong. And what we've right. found is over the last 15 years or so, the tailwind or that dividend that Canada gets from high oil prices so, oil prices move up, more straws in the ground. I mean, I'm not an oil engineer. I love but,
1: that, oil engineer. Yeah. yeah.
2: But, you know, that's right. more strong energy ground. extraction, that's investment. That boosts growth. That boosts that that boosts the sort of uh, domestic income of of Canada. Mm-hmm. That multiplier has diminished. It's still there. It's still there. But you know, you can imagine because of a, a change in the way new energy projects come online, the climate around that uh, <laughs> has changed a little bit. Um, and and for that reason, oil extraction is is less of a dividend than it used to be. This is actually a something we answered in our Q1 paper it was the 15th question in our Q1 paper that we managed I'm to I'm going to go back in.
1: and read that to make sure that I know which one it applies to tell us how this has you positioned um, I can guess from a couple of the way you've described things but but bring us up to date sure so
2: you know from the from the start of this year to the middle of this year we were defensively positioned we had underweights we had a in our 60/40 we had a roughly 5% underweight to equities um, and as you can imagine, the way markets moved in the first half of this year, uh, being defensively positioned, you know, was was a little bit hurtful. Thankfully, the underlying fund managers that we use in our funds uh, did a great job of choosing the, the right securities, the right stocks and bonds, and more than offset uh, that that for us. But as of today, we're roughly um, neutral beta. So the sixty okay. forties are sitting roughly at sixty and forty, and the. 50-50s are 50-50, but there's a lot more going on under the surface. We continue to be underweight Canadian and U.S. equities. We're overweight international and emerging market equities, overweight the commodity producers, which we can talk about in a second as it relates to inflation. Um, And then on the bond side, uh, underweight uh, investment grade, overweight credit and spread sectors and inflation protection. Mm. And then most importantly, uh, we are back to being significantly underweight the Canadian dollar. Right. So the the way we think about the Canadian dollar, as we mentioned, is the most natural um, lever of adjustment, if and when sorry when the Canadian do- the Canadian economy begins to run into some problems from these elevated rates of debt and right. high uh, rates, is the Canadian dollar. That's the first sort of so the outlet. That's the outlet that, yeah. that that can be released, and by being underweight, the Canadian dollar, we basically use it as a shock absorber. Right. So in, in the event of a Canadian dollar depreciation, further Canadian dollar depreciation, if we're underweight the Canadian dollar significantly as we are today, our funds get hurt less. Yeah. Right. So it acts as a shock absorber.
1: Right. So take us back to, um, I want to get into, you're, you are an inflation guy. <laughs> I love the way that you think about it, inflation and I love that you go through uh, Jay Powell's words on inflation so carefully. Um, sometimes you bring us up to date on that. Go into sort of the commodity story, the defense that commodities might provide against ongoing inflation. I mean, first of all, do you see ongoing inflation?
2: Sure, so let's let's kind of unpack inflation let's, a little let's bit. Let's
1: begin, yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: this might take a few minutes, but I think it's worth doing. Absolutely. Uh, the first thing I would suggest is everyone should read uh, Chair Powell's speech at from the Jackson Hole conference in Wyoming uh, from a couple weeks Wasn't ago. Wasn't that
1: long, actually, No, speech. it was a
2: very short speech. Yeah. It's very accessible, and it does a great job of explaining what are the drivers that are winning right now on inflation and where more, more progress needs to be seen. So what, where's, where has the progress been? On the goods side. Yeah. Right? So if you think about inflation as a pie, three quarters of the underlying pie of inflation are service prices and one quarter are goods. Goods prices like you know Pelotons and air fryers and co- vehicles. So there was a tremendous amount of inflation uh, in the goods components during the pandemic when we couldn't All consume right. services. Right there has been a lot of progress on the rates of inflation in goods coming back to pre-COVID levels. And right now, basically goods prices in the US are inflating at pre-COVID levels. Uh, so that is outright progress. But what we're left with is the three quarters of the pie that is still running quite hot, right? So a large chunk of that is shelter or, uh, or housing. Um, that is sort of stubbornly elevated and, and kind of sticky. Yeah. Uh, the most important driver of shelter inflation is the labor market. When the labor market is very tight, shelter inflates at a strong rate. And the rest of it are non-shelter services. So recreation, uh, travel, insurance, medical care, restaurants, yeah. stuff like that. That is also inflating at a at a pretty elevated rate uh, because the labor market is tight, right? So-
1: People can afford it, exactly. so goes the argument.
2: Exactly, the biggest input into a service price is the price you pay the person doing the service. Um, And so the services part of the inflation pie is still higher than where the Fed would like it and the Bank of Canada. And for that reason, in my opinion, Chair Powell was extremely clear in saying, rates are not coming down anytime soon. Rates will remain elevated until we see progress on inflation. And really, if you read, read it closely, until we see progress on the labor market getting less tight. Um, and so what does that mean for positioning, if yeah, I can sneak that please, in? Please, please. Um, you know, again, we ha- we've had a, a longstanding view that inflation would remain stubbornly elevated and be higher for longer than most people think. So we've pushed back on this idea of rate cuts, we've pushed back on an immaculate return to 2% inflation. And for that reason, we own the asset classes that protect investors against inflation. Uh, top of that list is commodities, commodities mm-hmm. commodity producers. On the bond side, it's uh, it's TIPS, it's inflation-protected bonds. Um, you can think of emerging market also as having that commodity uh, flavor and inflation flavor as well. Um, but we we continue to have those positions because of the damaging effects of, of inflation on, um, on, on portfolios. The last thing to mention there, if I can sneak in, I mean, we can talk about yeah. inflation forever, but the last thing to mention there is even though the rate of inflation is slowing, mm-hmm back to where we hope it should be
1: which is 2 or 3
2: which is 2 i think okay. it should be 2 um, yep. i don't think they'll declare a victory at 3
1: okay.
2: we shouldn't forget just how much price levels have changed in the last 2 years right so in the last 2 years the average canadian wage is up 10% grocery prices are up 20% eating out is up 15% right so, so we're
1: still under we're water. Still,
2: exactly so yeah. that that speaks to that um decline in, in sort of purchasing power. In the US in the last 3 years, wages are up 15%, car you used car prices are up 40, right? So th- there th- that speaks to while inflation is improving in terms of where you are now versus 3 years ago, it's undoubtedly worse off.
1: You're going to have to cut spending at some exactly. point. Okay, piles of questions coming in. So let's let's go to some of these. So one is can one argue that we are in stagflation it actually goes nicely with what you just said so
2: I don't think right now we're observing a stagflationary environment okay. I think of stagflation as uh high inflation so that's a check mark right we mm-hmm. still have that uh, inflation is improving but it's still higher than where we would like it to be or where central banks would like it uh, but the other part of stagflation is that stagnant growth right now we did have uh, sort of an unexpected Unexpectedly weak GDP print in Canada, mm-hmm. and there are certainly parts of the GDP report that are in recession, right? So new residential investment, no question, that's in, that's in a recession right now. But
1: you're answering the next question right now. Okay, that's great. great. Yeah.
2: yeah. Right. What we, uh, what we really need to see, is a pullback in consumer spending. Right. right. So consumer spending is two thirds of the Canadian GDP, and more than and around three quarters of US GDP. And the consumer has remained exceptionally resilient yes. for much longer than we would have expected now some of that again that's the last paper that we talked about the cushion of savings the bank effect of forbearance some of that is the bank of mom and dad or um, a nicer way to say that is intergenerational wealth transfer yeah. shoring up some of those uh that monthly spend but uh you know if you look at the details of consumer spending goods and services it's very, very solid in the US and fairly solid in Canada as well. Um, and eventually that will change, but uh, that's that's where we are right
1: now. Okay, this question is a great one to kind of round out some of your thoughts on because it's, it's what is your outlook on the Canadian dollar, which you hit on earlier, but just kind of maybe sum some parts of that up with your view on where the Canadian dollar goes from here.
2: Sure, so again, the, the thesis that we put forth in Q3 is Things have not transpired in the first six months the way we would have expected. Why is that the case? Yeah. So let's take a good hard look.
1: And is it still coming?
2: And is it still coming? Yeah. And what we are left with after that research is, I would say, even higher conviction that this is coming. Mm-hmm. The most natural path of adjustment is the Canadian dollar to take that, to take the brunt of that shock. You know, so that explains why we have that underweight, is a view towards the eventual stress that Canadian households will feel, the eventual pullback in discretionary consumer spending, which will result in a cooling in inflation, which comes through from the employment side, and a depreciation of the Canadian dollar.
1: Depreciation of the Canadian dollar, do you um, balance that out with with your overall strategy with a mostly overweight to the U.S. dollar, or does it go into sort of EM currencies, or explain how that fans out? Yeah, so it's,
2: it's diversified, but most of that underweight to the Canadian dollar is and overweight to the U.S. dollar. Okay. Right. So, uh, you know, this is something we attacked and wrote about in our Q2 paper. Yep. Is in the presence of elevated inflation and inflation volatility, when stocks and bonds seem to be positively correlated, right? So they went down together uh, last year. They're sort of moved up together this year. A better diversifier for us is through the currency, right? And that's exactly the approach we took. So, last year, for example, we were you know, when we were defensively positioned, we were overweight uh, the U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. which turned out to be to, to be the right move. But again, this is this is a, a particular and unique challenge for us, having uh, the currency as as a lever that we can use really in our in our asset allocation strategies.
1: Um, this is the the questions surrounding what Jay Powell said uh, in his in his comments about you know where cuts might be or sort of the what was what was uh, taken out of that so cuts are pushed off till later next year I and mean, some people will say things are going quite gangbusters. why aren't cuts looking you know even further out because anyway I'm just sort of what did you think on the messaging about cuts?
2: Sure so I mean I think I think sort of the completely reverse I think we should not discount further rate increases right yeah. so if we think it's about midterm early like yeah you know the, the timing of that is very difficult to know yeah. But what do we know? So we know inflation is too high. We know the unemployment rate is too low. We know that consumer spending is still strong. We know in the U.S. that households are particularly almost insensitive, less sensitive to rate hikes because of the structure of their mortgage market. That all means the Fed needs to either stay where they are for longer than people believe or perhaps even push higher. And if you read, if you read the speech carefully, he provides a few hints that, you know, they may not be done. Right. So if they don't get the progress on inflation and the labor market that they need to see. So that's a slowing in services inflation and a sort of slight increase in the unemployment rate or a cooling in job growth, then they have more work to do. Right. So I think I would heavily discount this idea of, of rate cuts. It's something that we've pushed back against for quite a while um, and speaks to the importance of being diversified.
1: Right. Right. Um, Tell me what you really, as a student of inflation, um, this must be an extraordinary 10 years to be watching these markets and doing your job. I mean, just a couple of highlights. Sure, it really is. (laughs) A couple of highlights.
2: So I sat on the research team in Boston for seven years on the asset allocation research team as the head of inflation and commodities research. And, you know, I joke now that the hardest thing about that job was keeping a number that hadn't moved in 25 years interesting every month. (laughs) Totally. Uh, And then that you know, the 1.9 or 2.1. And then the 2% goes to 8% in the US and 7% in Canada. Um, And again, it's been absolutely striking to see the, the types of inflation rates that we've observed. I don't want to discount the progress. There has been meaningful progress, as you would expect, on parts of the inflation basket. But the problem remains, most of inflation now versus 50 years ago is driven by the cost of people. Right. And people are very expensive because the labor market's very tight. Until wage growth slows meaningfully, service inflation won't slow. And until service inflation slows, we won't have a slowing in underlying core inflation. What I watch very closely now, again, thanks to the our, our great research team um, that we have access to, I watch very closely the evolution of the language from the Federal Reserve and the Bank of
1: Canada. Regarding labor? Regarding, regarding, regarding labor,
2: regarding inflation, you know, the nuances. Yeah. Um, you know, I, read, I still read those speeches very carefully. That's where we will start to see, if, if we start to see progress, meaningful progress, it will first show up in the language well before um, any meeting.
1: What was the word or phrase of evolution in this most recent Jackson Hole speech?
2: To me, the first chunk of the speech was on the progress. Yeah. And the second chunk of the speech was really on there's more work to be done and we'll remain vigilant okay. uh, if we need to do
1: more. Well. Alan Colette, it's a pleasure to see you in person and to speak with you. And thank you for sharing your thoughts here. Thanks again.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca/how-to-buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.